While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Son is the son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. So do keep that passage open in front of you, page 699 uh, in the, the church Bibles. Let's pray as we we come to understand this, we, we ask for God's help. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak to us in it clearly, reliably. Help us to attend to it. Help us to give you our attention and our focus. And uh, through what we hear this morning, help us to love you more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a children's worker in a church in London, I did that for two years before I went to theological college, uh, I, I remember we had a booth at the yearly uh, street fair that went by the, the parish church. And one of the ways that we tried to engage the passing crowd was uh, by putting up a, a board that said over the top, if you could ask God one question, and uh, having pieces of paper that people could write their, their question on and, and pin it up on the board and and that would be a way to talk to the people who were um, maybe writing the questions, and then people would stop to look and, and see what had been written and to see whether any of them were funny or interesting. And, and some of them, some of the questions were flippant, some were earnest. Some would write things like, will you give me tonight's winning Mega Millions number uh, in the lottery? And they would laugh and they would walk away, and, and, and then others would write, why did you let my mum suffer so long before she died? Uh, that was still obviously a, a painful thing for them. Obviously it would be. And if they were willing, we would try to talk to them about those questions, maybe try to show them how the Bible would answer them, and um, bring their, their question to God, as it were. Now, our goal was to engage people in evangelistic conversation, and it certainly wasn't a bad approach for starting conversations. Because everybody has big questions about life and death and, and everything. Uh, some people want to know whether God really exists. And some people are convinced he does exist, but they're not sure how he could be kind or, or loving, not after the things that they've been through. So it was rarely difficult to start a conversation that way. But what I'm less convinced about at this stage, a decade hence on, is whether it was a good evangelistic approach. It starts conversations. Is it evangelistic? Bertrand Russell, he's the famous 20th century uh, mathematician, philosopher, and outspoken atheist. He wrote a book called Why I Am Not a Christian. And he was asked by a journalist once, suppose you die and you 
to your surprise, find yourself standing before Almighty God, what will you say to him? And, and Bertrand Russell said, not enough evidence, Scott. Not enough evidence. And I used to assume there are a lot of people like that. They would have faith. They want to have faith even. They just need a good argument put before them. They just need an explanation, and then they'd be able to say, oh, okay, I see, yeah, I believe. And though I am confident that there are good arguments and good explanations for the Christian faith, for God's existence, for um, uh, suffering, for all these sorts of questions that people have, I'm not sure I've ever met anyone that became a Christian because they found an answer to that question. Maybe, maybe you have. You could talk to me about it if you have. I think over the last couple of weeks, we've, as we've been looking at Matthew 22, we have seen just this sort of problem. The, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law come along to Jesus and, and they begin volleying questions at him and, and asking him things. And he answers in a way that astonishes everybody around and... and then they just ask another question. They, they pivot. They, it doesn't lead them to faith. It just changes the angle of their attack. They want to know about taxes, about the resurrection, about the law. And they want to know what he has to say on all these sorts of things, but nothing seems to lead them to where they should be going, to faith. They just pause and raise another question. And I think... If you've ever tried to talk to somebody about the Christian faith, maybe that's been your experience as well. They, they uh, have an objection, you answer it, and they just ask another thing, uh, and a, another objection. But what we find in this morning's reading is that after replying to all their arguments, Jesus finally sets the agenda himself. He is not replying, he's building the argument. He's making the argument. And what kind of argument does he use? How does he try to convince people of the truth? It's got to be a pretty great argument if this is the Jesus's go-to argument. It is one opportunity to ask them a question. And we see at the end of verse 46, nobody dared to ask him another question after it. Nobody dared to ask him another question. So it seems like it's an unanswerable argument, doesn't it? So what is Jesus's ultimate argument for belief? That's what we're coming to here. He opens by asking them a question about the Messiah. Now, Messiah, that's the Hebrew word. Christ is the Greek word. They both mean the same thing, anointed one. When Israel would appoint a, a, a anoint a king, they would pour oil over him. They, he would be God's chosen king. And, and it was the term that they used, Messiah, Christ, was the term they used for the coming promised leader of God's people. In the Bible, God speaks of a great leader who's going to come and set everything right and restore his people. And so Jesus asked the Pharisees, who were the religious experts of the day, they knew their Bibles, a very basic question for them. What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? 
And they think that's an easy one. The son of David. Now that is an easy question because it's explicitly stated a number of times in the Old Testament. So 2 Samuel 7, Isaiah 11, Jeremiah 23, and a lot of other Old Testament passages in, in the prophets, they say that the long-promised leader will be someone from the family line of King David. The greatest king in Israel's history, the, the promised king is going to come from his line. So they've answered the basic question, and, and having established that common ground with them, Jesus then deploys his argument. He points to them, uh, he points them to Psalm 110. Maybe if you, you'd like, you can turn back to Psalm 110. Keep a, a, a finger in Matthew 22, but um, Psalm 110 is on page four three four four three four and you can see here that he quotes from psalm 110 he psalm 110 it was uh written as you can see it's of david a psalm so it's, it's written by king david and it was long recognized as a messianic psalm something that's talking about that promised leader and in it, King David speaks of a greater ruler whose scepter is going to extend to the nations, to rule over the nations. But if the Messiah is going to be one of his offspring, says Jesus, then isn't this psalm a little strange, he says to them? Verse 43 of Matthew 22, uh, he, he said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord set to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. You see, that's verse 1, Psalm 110. David writes, the Lord, that is Yahweh, God, Almighty, the covenant God of Israel, said to my Lord, that is David's superior. And Jesus says, isn't that a problem, you Pharisees? So what's the problem? Maybe it's not clear to us yet. What is the problem? Well, ancient Israelite society, I think, is a lot like traditional Asian society. You might talk about your ancestors as your superiors, but not your descendants. Here, people maintain shrines to worship their ancestors, right? Adults maintain the graves of their parents and grandparents and ancestors. Children pay their parents a portion of their income to honor them. Filial piety goes in one direction, younger to older. And it was the same in Israel. So, verse 45, if then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? How does that work? So what's Jesus' point? It's, it's this. If the Messiah is only a human being, if he's the political leader, the, the military leader that you think he is, why would David call him Lord? David was the king of Israel. The, I don't know if you're familiar with monarchies, but there's nothing higher than the king. You don't call anybody else Lord if you're king. 
but contrary to every cultural expectation, he calls his descendant my lord. Therefore, there must be more to the Messiah than they think. Whose son is he? Now, only a couple days before, Jesus has uh, ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey with large crowds of people surrounding and singing his praises and laying palm branches down before him because they knew that he was the Messiah, or they thought he was the Messiah. And when he cleansed the temple court, that was a, a direct uh, reference to what the Messiah was predicted to do. It only strengthened his, uh, their ideas about who he was. No one was in any doubt that Jesus was claiming to be this long-promised king. But they thought they knew what it meant, and it was sort of limited. I mean, it was something they hoped for, but it was sort of limited. He's going to be the long-awaited political military leader. He's going to chase out the Romans. He's going to reestablish the kingdom of Israel, and he's going to be great. A great human leader. Great. In other words, they thought he'd be a bit like David. But Jesus, with this argument, shows them that if they really understood what the scriptures said, if they really examined what the Bible uh, says about the Messiah, then they would fall to their knees in worship. Whose son is he? He's David's greater son. He's the son of God. Really, that's the only way to make sense of Psalm 110. If you read through it, if you still have a, a finger there, if you look through, the Lord, God, says to my Lord, the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord's uh, going to put him at his right hand, his place of authority. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion and you'll rule in the midst of your enemies. So uh, rule over the whole earth. Verse 4, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. A forever priest, an eternal priest? Verse 6, he'll crush the rulers of the whole earth. Now, you've heard the phrase, if it looks like a duck, if it walks like a duck, it's probably a duck, right? Well, if it sits with God, he sits with God. If he is eternal like God, if he's omnipotent like God, he's probably God. He's God. It's as though Jesus opens their eyes to what has always been right in front of them, but they just easily overlooked it. They just easily um, reduced what it was saying. He opens their eyes to the scriptures so that their eyes will be open to the God-man standing in front of them. And their response is what? Fearful silence. No one dared Ask him another question after that. So what's the ultimate argument that leads people to the truth about God, about faith? It's the Messiah of the scriptures. He is the ultimate argument. It's Jesus himself. What I mean is most people 
have some sort of assumptions. They've picked up something about who Jesus is. I don't remember maybe ever meeting somebody who, when, when I've mentioned Jesus, says who? Now, people, people know who he is in some way, in some sense. They think, yeah, I, I understand him. I've picked up things from pop culture, from religious education classes in school, from brushes with other Christians that I've known, and and wherever else they've picked it up. And most people have a preconceived idea about who Jesus is. But it's not until they dig into the scriptures and open them up that they begin to see how superficial their ideas are. You know, they start with this idea, uh, he was a great teacher. I know that about Jesus. Or maybe he, he was a wonderful moral example. He really showed people how to live. Or he was a, a spiritual person, a deeply spiritual person. Maybe they'll even go as far as to say he was a real prophet of God. But it's not until they open up the scriptures that those preconceived notions begin to be blown apart. And he's just a good teacher, then when, when, when he was a baby, why did people come and worship him? If he was kind to, to prostitutes, but he called religious leaders snakes, what kind of moral teacher is that? He said he was the almighty king. And he died in suffering and weakness. He was enthroned on a, a cross. He was God in the flesh, but he was killed like a criminal. See, the reality of Jesus revealed in the scriptures blows apart the pre preconceived notions of people about him, about faith, about God. He turns our assumptions upside down, and it's, it's as people encounter the real Jesus of the Bible, who he actually was, his teaching, his life, his death, his resurrection, it's that that draws people to faith, him. He's the ultimate argument for belief. So what do we make of that? What should we make of that? Well, when it comes to Jesus do we know who we're dealing with? Jesus is God in the flesh, and, and recognizing that will have different applications depending on whether you're a Christian or not. Those who aren't yet Christians need to learn the lesson of the Pharisees. You see, all through Matthew's gospel, the Pharisees opposed Jesus, believing that they were being faithful to God. They thought, we're living the way we should be living. We're honoring God in the way that he should be honored. And we don't need this Jesus guy. But because Jesus is God, their opposition to him doesn't help their religious credentials. Rather, it means that they're opposing God himself. And the same applies to those who resist Jesus today. even those claiming to be religious while doing so. So if you're not honoring Jesus, you're not honoring God. 
If you resist his call on your life, if you reject his authority over you, if you deny that you need his gracious offer of salvation, then you resist, you reject, you deny God. That's not a position that you want to be in, that I want to be in. If that is anyone here, I pray that you'll see who you're dealing with from Jesus' argument. Son of David is the Son of God. So let your, your silence be, let your opposition be silenced and change course. Those of us who are Christians, though, we need to take comfort in the true identity of Jesus. The Son of David is the Son of God because he was really human. He can understand the weaknesses that you have and face in life because he was really human. He knows it from the inside. So when you feel frail, when you feel unable, he knows exactly what that feels like. He's experienced it. But because he's God, he, he's not just sympathetic. He can walk with you through that weakness and that frailty and that fearful valley of death. And he can bring you safely to the other side. Do you see? He's human, so he understands you. He's God, so he can empower and walk with you, bring you safely. One day, every enemy is going to be put under his feet. All sin, all sickness, all death, under his feet. All darkness and demonic forces under his feet. All persecutors and mockers under his feet. And you know, I, I reckon that is a great comfort to Christians in Pakistan this week. I don't know if you saw anything of that. Churches burned, people killed, spurious charges against them, mob rule, Christ's enemies under his feet. And where will Christian people be? At his side. Surrounding his throne. Rejoicing with him forever. He is God. He'll do what he's promised to do. Bring you with him. And for the evangelist, notice that when Jesus picks up when he picks his own argument rather than responding to somebody else's, and when he leads them to the truth, notice that it's not a big philosophical argument from first principles. He could do that kind of thing. You know, John 1 says he was there at the beginning. He knows the first principles, but he doesn't go to that argument. Nor... Is his argument some miraculous, supernatural miracle? Now, he's done that. He's, he can do that. He could have done something amazing for them right there. But that's not his go-to argument. Though the argument he makes to his opponents to lead them to the truth is essentially this. 
Go to the scriptures. See what you find there. Understand what they say about me. The ultimate argument for belief is an encounter with the Christ revealed in scriptures. So if you're waiting or looking for some other argument to lead you to faith or to help your friend come to faith, there's nothing greater than this one. The scriptures pointing to Jesus. Now some of us think well, this should give direction to our evangelistic efforts. Some of us think that if people are going to become Christians, we need to give them a good argument on their terms, answering their questions. Sometimes we can do that. Other, others of us think it's uh, if we just do good enough things around the community, people will see. Christians are good people. I want to be a Christian. And sometimes... There's, there's goodness in doing that. And maybe others sometimes think, well, it's no use really trying to convince anybody. They need a spiritual experience. They need to, to feel God somehow in their lives, in their emotion, and that's what will bring them to faith. And that may be useful as well, but those are not where Jesus goes. Jesus argues otherwise. He says the way to get people's eyes open to the truth is to open the scriptures to them, to show them how the reality of Jesus explodes their ideas about, explodes their ideas about God. How their preconceptions are weak and pale in comparison to the reality of the risen Christ. And it tends to be that when people start putting together the pieces of who Jesus is, that's when they come alive to faith. So as evangelists, we need to take people to the Jesus of Scripture. We've got to know that the Christ predicted in the Old Testament, the one revealed by eyewitnesses in the Gospels, the one reflected on by the New Testament. And when they see that God is king, that he's God's king, well then... They can rejoice because they see he's come to deal with sin. He's come to deal with death. He's come to forgive. He's come with grace. They'll see the whole of creation is going to be restored by him. He's the ultimate argument. We need to speak of him. And he is not just the best argument for starting somebody in the Christian life, but lastly, he's the, the best way to, to grow in the Christian life. He's the best argument to grow us. In the Christian life. Listen, if, if you want a, a list of disciplines for your Christian life and practices to grow as a Christian, you, 10 spiritual life hacks to, to have a happy family, there are a lot of churches you can go to in Hong Kong. They'll give you just that, if that's what you want. But the problem is that doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't grow people. You don't need a list of practices. You don't need a bunch of disciplines, uh, as spiritual life hacks. You, you need to know Jesus more deeply, more intimately, more fully as he has revealed himself to be. That's the way you grow because you'll see his beauty. You'll see his goodness and 
his absolute perfection, you'll be drawn to him like a magnet. He'll make you restless with sin. He will make your heart long for sanctification, and then wonderfully, by the power of his Spirit, he'll actually change you. He will. Not your habits and your life hacks. He will give you a heart that loves God, that loves your neighbor. He will give you the power to live for him in every area of life. He's the ultimate argument. He's what people need to come to faith. He's what we need to grow in faith. Let's look to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus loves us too much to leave us in confusion. Thank you that uh, you, you sent him to clarify for all who were willing to pay attention who you are and, and what you stand for and, and what you are willing to do for those you love. Lord, I praise you that as Christians we have um, access to you, that we have power from you uh, through the Lord Jesus and what he has achieved. Thank you that you change us to make us more like him. Lord, keep us growing. Keep us learning. Keep our preconceived notions. Uh, keep breaking them down. And Lord, I pray for any here who might not yet be, be Christians. Please, would you open their eyes to who they're dealing with, to what he's done for them, to the grace on offer to them. Lord, I pray that we would focus on Christ in all that we do as a church and as individuals. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.